Scripture reading for David's lesson will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. That can be found on page 1078 of your pew Bibles. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope we can be an encouragement to you. It's been kind of a wet and, and maybe in ways a dreary weekend, but isn't it wonderful uh, to be together and, and to, to have the warmth and the encouragement of Christian fellowship, and even to know even in the midst of a rainy weekend, uh, it was God's will. Uh, he provides exactly what we need. And one of the things the church family always needs is to come together and worship God. Uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you've made worshiping God a priority in your life. We're going to begin another series uh, for a month. This month and this time it will be on service. And what does God say to us and expect of us about serving Him and serving others? And also a part of this theme this month will be We Are the Sermon Day. And there'll be a lot more said about that over the next few weeks, but it'll be the last Sunday of this month, October 24th, We Are the Sermon Day. And so some of your classes have already been discussing about what you're going to do to serve the community on that particular day. And if not, be sure your class starts discussing that today so that uh, by the time the 24th rolls around that, that you have nailed down uh, how you're going to serve the community in such a way to show Christ's love and to give God all the glory. Also, we are thankful this morning that a mission family from France, the Friots, are going to be with us, and uh, I don't think they're in this service. Am I right? Or uh, Okay, and, and be looking for them, though, in Bible class and after Bible class, and uh, we look forward to getting to know them better and are thankful for the work that they do in France. I love the story, and you've probably heard it. But I love the story of the elderly lady that comes out on her front porch every morning and, and she says, this is the day the Lord hath made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. I praise you, God. Well, this was her daily routine. And a young man that was an atheist moved in next door. And so whenever she would say that, and at the end she'd say, I praise you, God, if, if, if he could, a lot of the mornings, he would make it out, stick his head out the door. And just as she'd say that, he'd say, there is no God. And this became a part of their daily routine. Well, one day, mid-afternoon, she goes out and, and she says, God, I praise you as a provider of all things and I'm out of food. Please give me my daily bread. She goes back in her house and it touches the heart of the atheist. And so he goes to the grocery store and he buys two large sacks of groceries. And he takes them and puts them by her front door and he knocks on the door and he goes around the side of the house. 
And she comes and she sees the, the groceries and, and she looks up and she says, praise God, you have provided groceries. And about that time, he jumps out from inside the house and he says, no, it was me that brought those groceries. And she said, praise God, you provided the groceries and an atheist paid for them. <laughs> you know, when, when, we think about, when we think about service, it is interesting all the things that we can conjure up in our minds and all the things that we can even ask ourselves about how does God really want us to serve him? Pause for just a moment and think about that. How do we serve God? You and I can't wash God's feet. You and I can't bring God a cup of cold water. You and I can't say, God, I, I would like to show you warm hospitality. Come over to my house and eat lunch today. God, I'd like to provide a warm coat for you as winter approaches. How, how do we serve God? In this month, what I want us to see is that all throughout the scriptures, the difference in just a good neighbor that occasionally and maybe regularly does good for other people the difference in them and a Christian is that the Christian sets out every day to serve God in the way God points them to others. We're going to hopefully greatly develop that text in 1 Peter 4. And so by way of introduction this morning of this topic, I just want to quickly remind you that everything that we learn about service goes back to our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when he had just led the Passover feast and then he washed the disciples' feet, which was the most lowly position of the servanthood in the house. And notice what it says in John 13 and 13. You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus washed the feet here, and, and as he washed them, he also made it very clear Yes, you do call me teacher and you do call me master and you say that well. But now as the one who is your leader, notice what I've done. I've washed your feet and in doing that, I've also set an example because these men that he washed their feet, they're gonna be the leader of the church as it begins. And he wants them to see that leaders aren't in position so everybody can serve them. No matter who we are, whether we're the best of followers or the best of leaders, if we're doing it the way God wants it to be done, Jesus is saying, we all are servants. Most assuredly, most assuredly, if I, your master, have set this example, you're not greater than me. And so everyone here has the burden of responsibility to say God expects us to serve. And then he says, it's not just knowledge, but it's knowledge and doing it. In other words, I need to take the time to learn. God, how do you want me to serve? Jesus, if I'm going to serve like you, how do you want me to serve? And so he closes this passage by saying, or at least the passage of part where we're stopping, we end here with him saying, gain this knowledge. 
and then do it so that you can be richly blessed. Now, he takes all this knowledge and this doing it back to a motive. And I'd like for you to look at 34 and 35 of this very same chapter. Later that same night, just a little bit later, he said these words, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. What's the point here? This servanthood that he's spoken of earlier he says it ultimately comes back to love. And I'm going to raise the bar of love. They'd had the commandment to love one another since the old covenant. But so he's not giving them a new commandment in that it's new to love each other. The new aspect, when he says, I give you a new commandment, the new aspect is that he raises the bar. He says, now I want you to love one another as I have loved you. You remember, I just washed your feet. And you know that I'm about to go to the cross for you. I want you to see this high wonderful standard of love. And I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. And, and there may be some in, among us right now, they're saying, you know, I really don't like when we put an emphasis on service because I always feel like I can't do it the way it needs to be done. I want you to think about the beauty of this. God will never ask you to serve in a way that you don't have the ability he won't, so relax. If you're saying, I see people do things in service to others and I can't do what they're doing and I feel bad. God's not asking you to do what you don't have the ability to do. God's not asking you to do what you don't have the time to do. God's not asking you to do what you don't have the money or the resources to do. God is not asking you to do what you don't have the opportunity to do. And so I hope in that sense, all of us can kind of breathe easy and say, okay, this is good. But I would like for you to think that what we're going to see as we look at major passages this month on service, because God has great expectations for us. And one of the things that he has for us, as we studied last month, is he has the expectation of holiness. And when God sets us apart, it's not just so we can be apart. He sets us apart for service. When God set things under the old covenant apart to be used in the temple, it wasn't just so it would be set apart from the world. It was to be used in the temple. It's to be of service. And so think about it. God doesn't bring us out of the world so then we or God can just say, okay, they're set apart now. He brings us apart to be used. And so let's real quickly Think about the how and the why and et cetera. And, and I want you to notice that we'll see this throughout this month as we look at like Romans 12. We'll see the same thing as we look at 1 Corinthians 12. But we're going to see it today as we look in 1 Peter 4. How does he want us to serve one another? With whatever ability he's given you. That's it. You don't have to go out and try to create something you don't have. Why does he want you to serve? He wants you to serve because you genuinely love him and others. When we look at who, who do you want me to serve? He says, well, you're serving me, but I want you to serve one another in how you serve me. And the result, oh, there'd be many results we could talk about, but ultimately it's always going to go back to serving in such a way that God receives the glory. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4. I hope that as we turn here, you are uh, excited about breaking down this text. I, I love studying the Bible, 
uh, I wish I could do it better. I wish I could do it deeper, but, but I just love studying the Bible. And as I read through these verses that we're studying this morning, and I reread them several times, there were a few phrases that you just couldn't help but notice. Wait a minute. That is a reoccurring phrase. And then as I noticed, there were two definite, strong, reoccurring phrases. Then I got to noticing the whole text is built around these two reoccurring phrases. And so first I want you to notice that there is the reoccurring phrase of all things. Three times he uses the phrase all things in 1 Peter 4 and 7 through 11. First he uses in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. And in verse 8 he says, above all things have a fervent love for one another. In verse 11 he concludes his thought by saying, in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like for us to do is take just a few minutes to say, well, what do these all things phrases teach us? And then we'll come back and lay them down beside the one another phrases. And this passage just, just comes to life in meaning. It, it just unpacks itself and makes itself clear. And so first let's think about this, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, you know, the question is, is he talking about here the very end, like the second coming of the Lord? And definitely that could be what is on his mind, or that could be definitely an application for us of what's on his mind. And you, somebody might say, well, if he's not talking about that, what is he talking about? It could be that he's prophesying an event that's going to happen just five years from the time he's writing this, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem. 70 AD is right around the corner, and it was a horrific event for those living in Jerusalem and especially Jews that were living in Jerusalem. I hesitate to give you this long a quote, but, but this might be a good way to get a lot of information out quickly. Barclay gives a description of what happened just five years down the road and why Peter might have used this phrase, but it's the end of all things. And by the way, as we're about to read this quote, think about in 1 Peter the fourth chapter, if he is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, then you go over to 2 Peter, the third chapter, and he's definitely talking about the end of time. The same writer might be writing about both, which is interesting because Jesus in Matthew, the 24th chapter, he seamlessly spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of times in one chapter. And so no doubt, both are topics that's used in the scripture. And by application, we have a day coming when it's going to be the end of all things. But here could very well be what he's talking about here. Here's a quote. The Neronian persecution broke against the Christians, sending countless thousands of them to the flaming death as torches to light the orgies in Nero's gardens or feed the wild beast in the Colosseum or to be crucified, tortured, burned alive, beheaded, or suffer any other horrible death that pagan mind could invent. All earthly possessions of Christians perished in the Holocaust. The Jews made an insurrection against Rome, and following the death of Nero, the pagan empire organized a war of extermination against them. Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Some 1,100,000 of the population, including Jews throughout the area being butchered by the Romans. 30,000 young Jewish males were crucified upon the walls of the ruined city, the lumber stores being exhausted to supply 
crosses. The nation of Israel perished from the earth, never to rise again until nearly two millennials passed. The sacred temple so dear to the heart of Jews everywhere was burned with fire, demolished stone by stone and completely ruined, never to be rebuilt. The whole religious system of Israel with its marvelous typical prefigurations of Christianity perished. The daily sacrifices ended forever. The high priest came to an end. The judgment of God was vindicated against that nation which had officially rejected Christ. The Sanhedrin never met again, and there began another dispersion that started the earth with the once chosen people. It's that kind of destruction that very well a Jew could have easily said, that was the end of all things for us. Because many of them lost everything they owned, they lost all that they believed in, and many of them lost their lives. But even the Christians that lived in Jerusalem suffered tremendously. It wasn't just the Jews. And so no matter what it was, I just want to give you that quote to paint this picture. When he says that the end of all things is at hand, do you realize there's a day when you and I will breathe our last breath and we'll close our eyes and it's the end of all things that we have experienced and touched and felt and owned upon this earth? Do you realize this afternoon you could die and it's the end of all things? Do you realize that the Lord's coming again? And when the Lord comes again, it's the end of all things. There's coming a day where all the things will end. You won't ever go to work again. That thing will be over. You won't ever own a house again. That, that house that you own right now, it'll perish. All the possessions that you have, those things will be gone. All your hobbies that you have, those things will be gone. There's coming a time where all the things are going to be gone. And so then the very next verse is greatly significant when he says in, in verse 8, but above all things have fervent love for one another. Wait a minute. Things right here. Let's put it on a graph. I like things. I go to work so I can buy things. I, I have hobbies because there's certain things I like. There's just things I like to do. There's things I like to own. There's things I like to experience. I, there are these things. And, and what does he say about things? The next verse. Are you getting this? This is significant. He says, above all things... I want you to have fervent love for one another. Fervent means unceasing, undying, unending. I want you to have a love for one another. That, where does it rank? It ranks above all the things. That's huge. We're learning something about a heart and a mind of a servant. The heart and the mind of a servant sees people as far greater than things. Because when the Lord comes again, According to 2 Peter, the third chapter, we're going to be able to look back over our shoulder and we're going to see all the things, the elements of this world are going to be burned up. What's going to remain? The people. The people are going to remain. The souls are going to remain. And that is the huge and significant reason that people are worth more than things. And so above all things, I want, you, I want you to love others because the things are going to perish one day 
and the souls are going to continue somewhere one day. And so how do we love one another above all things? And in verse 11, he says, I want you to do it in such a way, which by the way, we're going to come back with the one another passages where he teaches us how to do it. But however we do it, this should be the conclusion in verse 11. You do it in such a way that God receives the glory through Jesus Christ. We don't love one another so someone can pat us on the back and say, you are so good at loving other people. We love one another so people would say, wow, look how God has worked in that person's life. God is so good to us. Look how his people serve. The people we're serving, we're not even serving them to glorify them. We're not serving them to glorify us. We're serving them so that God would receive the glory. All right, so, so we'd see the three all things. Now let's go back and let's see the three one another passages and notice how it helps us to better understand the all things passages. Notice as he says, in one another, in verse eight, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. What does that last part mean? We already talked about the first part, that it's an undying love for others, but what does it mean when he says it covers a multitude of sins? You know, sometimes uh, when we don't know what a phrase means in the Bible, what's helpful is to see how that exact same phrase is used somewhere else. Remember the last two verses in the book of James, James the fifth chapter, verse 19 and 20. Notice how this covering a multitude of sins is used here. And, and think about it, as we're reading this, it's about one brother that's faithful, and one brother that's fallen away. And notice how these sins are covered. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, so there's someone's fallen away, they wander from the truth, and someone turns him back, the faithful comes over to turn him back. We studied about this last week. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. See, that's more important than things. Save a soul from death and what? Cover a multitude of sins. You have a fire breaking out here. You can take a wet blanket and you can cover the fire. What happens when, when a faithful brother or sister goes to an unfaithful brother or sister and says, I want to urge you to come back. I want to, I want to encourage you in every way I can to point you back to God. And that brother or sister says, you know, that's what I want. Thank you for loving me enough. Thank you for coming to encourage me. I'm going to turn back to God. And now what's happened to those sins? God forgives those sins. Those sins are covered. That very well could be what he has in mind here when he talks about, I want you to love one another. How? In such a way that souls are saved. Cover up the sin that's taking over people's lives. Well, how, how are we going to help people turn away? He says the place to start is loving them. You got to love them, though, he says, above things. You have to love them more than things. Okay, now, pretend we didn't read this. Maybe pretend you never read this in your life and you pause right here and say, I wonder how God would expect us to do that. Like I get it intellectually, that principle, but how do you live that out? Would it surprise you if the thing he says here and then in a very similar passage we'll study soon in Romans 12, he says the same thing again. Would it surprise you that one of the things he says to do is hospitality? Look, it's the very next verse. Let's read verse nine together. We, we've looked at one another in verse eight and now look at verse nine. How do we do this? There's two ways. Verse nine, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And then in verse 10, he's gonna tell us to minister to one another using the gift that he's given us. So let's go back to the first one. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 
Hospitality is, is literally the idea of taking in a person. It, it's receiving a person with warmth and, and also to fulfill needs. And in the scriptures, it's very strongly indicated towards strangers. It doesn't have to be limited to strangers. But it's not just the idea of taking in our best friends. It's the idea of, of bringing someone into what? Our life, our time, our possessions. You have a house. You want to encourage someone. You want to show them love. Show them the love of Christ by bringing them into your house. Maybe they need the encouragement that you can receive around a good meal at a table with people that love them. You think there's anybody in this community that hasn't sat recently around a table with somebody that loves them and enjoyed a meal together? I think about times in my life that I've heard various ones of you or experiences we've had where a young person comes over and eats a meal with a family. And the young person says, this is the first time in my life I've ever sat down at a table with a family and eaten a meal together. Isn't that amazing how many people around us have never experienced that kind of love and that kind of atmosphere? And God says, I want, I want you to be that kind of person. Why is that hard to do sometimes? Sometimes it's hard to do because we feel like we don't have the time to do it. You know what I found out in life? I found out, let's go back to the things and the people. I'm a slow learner. And I really have just been convicted of this in, in maybe the last decade or so of my life. But what I've learned in life is that everything you own and everything you love to do takes a block of your time. And sometimes we love so many things that it's very difficult for us to take care of all the things we've brought into our life to put people above them because they're competing for the same 24 hours of the day. You know, a job is really good, but a job takes up time. And you can make more at your job if you'll just work more time. But when you work more time, it takes more of your time. And you can make even more if you get another job or work more time than just more time. It's just that the more you do that, not only the more you make, the more it takes of your time. You know, having a house is really nice, but what I've noticed is that there's always things that have to be done at a house. They take time. You say, oh, I paid to get it done. Well, that means you have to work more to pay somebody. But ultimately, no matter what you own, however big it is, it will in some way require that much time. And if you, if you are blessed or cursed, don't get mad at me, if you're blessed or cursed enough to have a summer home, it requires more time. It takes time to get there. It takes time to keep it up. And if you own one or two or three timeshares, aren't vacations wonderful? They, they require one thing, though. They require time. Boats are wonderful. Motorcycles are wonderful. Sports cars are wonderful. Hobbies, scrapbooking, I hear it's wonderful. 
I don't know what, I don't know what the latest hobby is that you ladies like. Surely scrapbooking's got to be on its way out as old as it is, but I don't know what's new, but whatever. Spending time on Pinterest, that's, I hear that's, that's good. You think of anything you own, anything you enjoy doing. I'm not saying it's sinful, but I'm telling you, you're kidding yourself if you don't think it takes time. Now what happens when we become so engulfed in things that our schedule says we love things more than we love people? Why do we sometimes not practice hospitality? It's not because we hate people. It's because the things crowds out the people. Let me tell you how a conversation goes around the Shannon house, all right? And we're probably the only house that it happens this way. There'll be this sweet voice called Tracy, and she'll say, Hey, Dave, I just wanted you to know, I invited so-and-so over Monday night. And then there'll be this guy that answers and says, You did what? Yeah, I just thought it'd be a big encouragement. So I invited him over Monday night. I, I, I saw on your calendar, it's open. That's good, right? And I say, well, why Monday? Like, why couldn't we maybe, and my mind's reeling, couldn't we put it off a week or two? Couldn't we, couldn't we find some other way to encourage them? Couldn't we? And it's not that I don't like them. It's just what? It takes time. It takes, it takes an investment of time. And then, when we go ahead and do it, I'm reminded every time that people are far more valuable than anything that we had to do. Hospitality. There's probably a segment, a percentage of this congregation it hasn't been in a brother or sister's home in over a month. There's probably some that hadn't been in a brother or sister's home in over a quarter of the year. And truth be told, there's probably some that hadn't been in a brother or sister's home in a year. What's the Lord saying here? I didn't write it. You didn't write it. But God wrote it and God said, I want you to know that the end's coming where things don't matter anymore. And what I want you to do is I want you to love one another more than things. Okay, I, I hear you. What do you want me to do? I just want you to have people in your home. That's it. I just want you to be hospitable. And, and you don't have to be just in your home to be hospitable. Every time we come together, we have the opportunity as a church family to be hospitable. There's probably someone here this morning, right now in this assembly, that has not been here many times. It may be their first time or the third time or their fourth time. The question is, will we as a congregation be hospitable to them? Will they leave saying, you know, I, I received love today. Those, those people, they gave us love today. 
And why wouldn't we do it? Well, it really comes down to where's our measurement? Where's our gauge? Do we love others more than we love things? And so then we say, well, well, what else do I need to know? And I want you to notice the other one another is in verse 10. As each one has received a gift. So God's given each one's gifts, not the same gift, but we all have a gift. Minister, or that word could also be translated serve one another. Minister that gift to one another. He says a good steward, and that's talking about all of us collectively, as good stewards of the manifold grace, and the word grace means gift, a good steward of the manifold gifts of God. In other words, God has given, manifold means diverse and various. God has given many, many gifts in this room. You don't have the same gift as the person sitting next to you and, and may not even have the same gift as the person sitting next to them. But listen, all of us can use whatever gift that God has given us and we can use it in a way to show love for others. And when we all collectively show the manifold grace of God, that's each one doing our ability to show others by the way we put them above things, the way we serve them. He says, now you're showing love. Can people come into this gathering of people and all of us collectively use our abilities and influence to show love? That would be genuine hospitality. You can even go to work tomorrow. You go to work or school and, and someone comes in new. A, a new. a new employee comes in. Are you going to be hospitable? Are you going to be the one that goes over and says, hey, Want to meet you? Can I, can I show you around a little bit? Do I need to show you any place? Do you need to know the ropes? Do you need to know how things work? Or are you going to have that idea? Hey, you can just come in and learn it just like I learned it. You can learn through the school of hard knocks. Well, what are we going to do when it comes to hospitality? When you see an elderly person in the grocery store and it's obvious that they're looking for something, or maybe it's a guy about my age that can never find anything in the grocery store, and you know they're looking for something. And you know the grocery store like the back of your hand. Are you going to be hospitable enough in a sense to get involved in their life and say, hey, I see you looking a lot here. Is there anything I can help you find? I don't work at the grocery store, but do you love others more than you love things? Oh, you're looking for that bread. It's, yeah, it's not over here. It's over on the bakery, the other side of the store. And you get that dead pan look. You want me to show you where that is? Who would do that? Someone that was hospitable. Someone that says, you know, I want to invite you into my life. Whatever I can do to share life with you, I'd love to be able to walk with you a little bit through life just to show the love of God. And so on this next slide, this is your summary here. On the left, we have the all things. The end of all things are coming. And what that should teach us is that above all things, we should love because people are going to last. You see there, so then that carries us over to the one another. We love one another. Well, how does God want us to do it? He wants us to love one another by 
hospitable to one another, ministering to one another, and then what's to be the end of all of that? The end of all of that is that God would be glorified. What I learned today, number one, I learned that the Mount Juliet Church of Christ should be a place where no one leaves without being loved. Number two, I learned this should happen because we love people more than things. Number three, because we value servanthood more than selfies. That's from last Sunday night's lesson. Uh, less selfie people and more peopleese. By working together to each do our part, everyone can be loved, therefore God will be glorified. When we look at servanthood in scriptures, it's not just finding one organized ministry and saying, let me connect with it, which can be a very important part of servanthood. But servanthood actually begins in a heart that is set upon God and serves others because of that. If we can help you in any way, we really, really mean it when we say we'd love to serve you this morning. And collectively, you got a lot of people here with a lot of love and a lot of ability. And whatever your need is, surely there's someone here that can help walk with you if you need to cover a multitude of sins, if you need a fresh start, if you need to study because you got a lot more questions than you have answers, however we could help you. If you're ready this morning to be baptized into Christ, if you're ready this morning to be restored, if we